All right. Sam Quinones, thank you so much for coming on as a guest on Notes from the Front. It's really an honor to have you here. It's great to be here with you, Michelle. Thanks for the invitation. Today, we are going to talk about the meth and fentanyl crisis in America. Sam is one of the foremost journalists in the world on this topic. He's written a number of books that touch upon it or dive deeply, and you probably are most familiar with the book Dreamland. It was a huge bestseller a few years ago covering the opioid epidemic. And his most recent book, The Least of Us, is about meth and fentanyl and how they've changed the game. Um, so we're going to dive into a lot of topics here. I think it might, before we get into all the complexities, Sam, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about how you, how did this, how did you become the expert on meth and fentanyl? Like, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm guessing this wasn't what you dreamed of becoming as a child. No, um, I didn't even think I'd be a journalist as a child. Um, uh, I went to UC Berkeley and majored in American history and economics. Uh, and then uh, after graduating in the mid-80s, I went across the Bay, lived in the hate for three years. As I decided after graduating that it, journalism would be a, an interesting line of work and uh, fit me very, very well. And in fact, as, the more I did it, the more I was convinced of that. And I lived in the, the hate. And, and one of the places I, I wrote freelance was for the then the newspaper known as the Tenderloin Times. It was a really interesting monthly newspaper published in English, Spanish, Vietnamese, and Cambodian, four languages. Um, I wrote a f not only maybe three or four stories, I can't remember really now, it's been so many years, but I, I kind of got to know the Tenderloin. Um, I then really was more about finding work, finding a full-time job, and I eventually found work at the Orange County Register, uh, a weekly section of the paper, but it, I, I wanted daily journalism experience, and and so eventually I applied to um, the newspaper, the Stockton Record, out in Stockton, California, which was a life changing job, one of the great jobs of all time. Uh, I was a crime reporter, and I was the only crime reporter. And Stockton is a town with a significant crime problem, and at the time it was. Uh, bloods and Crips and crack cocaine. That was the main thing. Of course, I got to know a lot about other gangs, Norteños, Soreños, etc. A lot of other things. I saw black tar heroin for the first time. I did stories on methamphetamine for the first time. I did prostitution. Anyway, all of this stuff. And, of, and I did a number of years there, and it was like my graduate school. It was one of the best jobs I could ever have had. I wrote four or five stories a day for four years. And by the end of that, you know, it's a crucible. You're just formed in that. And I was certainly very lucky to work with some of the people I worked with there. I had a, gr there was a great staff there. We all were learning, younger reporters, all of us learning at the time, really great editors, et cetera. It was just a, a fantastic place to learn the craft of writing and journalism and de meeting deadlines. Eventually I went down to Mexico and I lived for 10 years in Mexico. And there um, I didn't really cover crime so much. I was more interested in covering immigration. I went to all the major sending states. I went to Zacatecas, Michoacán, Guanajuato, Sinaloa, uh, various states like that where really huge numbers of people have migrated uh, to, the to the United States. Oaxaca was another big one. A lot of the, bo the, border, the border states, uh, Juarez, Tijuana, various places like that, Tamaulipas, et cetera. 
And, um, and there I began to write more about immigration. I left the drug issue to other people. I was a freelancer. I was all on my own. I didn't have anybody to back me up. And so I thought that the drug issue was probably best left to other reporters with more resources at their disposal. And so I just, and I thought the, the immigration story was far more interesting. Also, I, it was a huge moment for immigration. Um, and massive amounts of people were crossing. Mexicans were going to parts of the country they'd never been before and staying, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, South Carolina, not just Arizona, LA, Vegas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and this I saw so in the I, 90s. Just this to was in beginning of 94, and I finally mm -hmm. left in 2004. I wrote my first two books down there. They were st uh, stories about Mexico, nonfiction stories about uh, the first book was True Tales from Another Mexico, The Lynch Mob, The Popsicle Kings, Chelino, and The Bronx. And it was just a bunch of stories, nonfiction stories about Mexico on the margins, because I found the margins to be far more interesting than, than, than the center. The center is where power was, but it was on the margins where the city, the country was more dynamic and innovative and, and seat of the pants, but also energizing and so on. And, and, um, it was also, you know, I had been very much at Berkeley. I had, I'd been very much into punk rock. I did a lot of punk rock shows at a place called Barrington Hall, which is a notorious, actually, co-op uh, uh, student housing and now closed. But um, I felt very much like I found kind of a punk rock kinship with migrants who were just going on their own, crossing. I, was, I felt very much like following my punk rock spirit when I was writing freelance. You know, it was just up to me to do it and just do it. That was the thing. And, and so 10 years down there and I wrote two books and it was, uh, again, another life-changing job and, and really changed my direction, uh, towards covering things regarding Mexico and Mexico and the United States and after economic integration and immigration, all that kind of fascinating stuff and the great magnificent stories you can tell from all of that. And, and, um, then I went back to, to LA where I'm from and got a job at the LA Times in 2004. And it was there that I began to uh, um, begin to cover the drug problems, uh, particularly in Mexico, because the, the drug war down there in Mexico kicked off about a year after I came back to Los Angeles. And I had never seen anything like what was happening down in Mexico at that point. It was absolutely terrifying. Beheadings, um, you know, horrible, sadistic stuff. Um, major battles first between the cartels and uh, Chapo Guzman kind of directing the Sinaloa boys to get get all, you know, challenge all the other cartels for territory over in the Texas side, up into Juarez, up into Tijuana, et cetera. And, and everything just kind of fell apart at that point. And all the rules that had been governing the cartel world just kind of disintegrated at that point. And um, so I began at the times I began to cover parts of that my my part was really on the on the u.s side how do drugs travel when they get across the border what happens to to dope and that was really my first in-depth uh, um, experience learning about drug trafficking um from mexico and it was part of that that led me to understand that we we're in the middle of an enormous increase in heroin um seizures which meant heroin use somewhere in the country. I couldn't believe that. I didn't understand how on earth we would possibly have more heroin because I thought heroin was like a passe drug. Like everyone knew it was a 
a drag of a truck. Why'd you even mess with that stuff? And that was largely, and so basically uh, that began to focus in my, uh, in part of the book that ended up being in Dreamland. Part of the story ended up being in Dreamland about this one town where everybody in the town came to the United States to um, sell heroin like pizza, very much like a pizza delivery system with, with uh, you know, uh, phone calls. You, addicts call the phone number. The, the, the operator dispatches a driver. And then, of course, I was at first with, uh, with pagers, but then cell phones came in, into vogue that, that took over the business. And they were very expansionary. They were not just, they, they started this one town, Jalisco, in the state of Nayarit, little town near the capital of Tepic. And, um, these guys were in 25 states by the time I finally figured this out. And this would have been about 2010, 11, 12, right in there. And then along the way, I understood. I came to understand why they had a, hair, a, a huge new burgeoning market. And that was because um, we had created in America an enormous new population of opioid addicted consumers through massive expansion of supply of, of narcotic prescription painkillers by drug companies and uh, really pressuring doctors and some doctors eagerly embracing that idea and others not so much, but it was nevertheless a national phenomenon from coast to coast, uh, unprecedented increase in, in, in these pills all over the country. And that, because heroin and these opioid painkillers are basically chemical cousins, that led those pills, addiction to those pills, eventually f for some subset of that, of that population led to heroin. Uh, addiction and the Mexican trafficking world began to fill that void. And I wrote about these guys from Jalisco, Nayarit, not because they're the only traffickers uh, out of Mexico to sell heroin, but rather because they were the first ones because of their expansionary system. They couldn't kill each other because they're all from the same town. So instead of competing uh, in towns, they would always look for new markets, very much like a franchise system, you know, and they landed in Columbus, Ohio. In 1998, two years after OxyContin was hit, hit the market, and they began to see a market for their heroin that they never had been able to imagine in other parts of the country. And that is where the opioid thing started. But then, of course, it spreads to both, both east and west, to both, both coasts. And after a while, by the time I was writing it, the whole, the whole country was really involved in this um, uh, problem. And so that began... I really wanted to write about a small town where everybody does the same job because I had written in Mexico while I was in Mexico. I realized I was very common. You know, I wrote about my first book, a town where everybody in the town makes popsicles and the popsicles have transformed um, very poor campesinos into middle-class um, merchants and, and, and entrepreneurs. Um, everybody does sells popsicles in this one town. And, 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 um, to me, that's, that was a fundamental part of Mexican uh, lower echelon of the Mexican, Mexican economy, that you learn your job from your brother-in-law and from your uncle and from your best friend's mom and all this kind of stuff, because nobody in, the, in those worlds have, has, has access to education that allow them to be, say, a mechanical engineer or something like that. It's just you learn. From, and so you find these towns, many of them, hundreds and thousands, probably thousands of them, where everybody does a job, and that job is generally determined by some guy who migrated to Pasadena and got into drywall hanging, 
or uh, Indianapolis and got into landscaping. And pretty soon everyone's a landscaper. Well, these guys migrated up to the San Fernando Valley in L.A. And, and a few families from that town figured out this way of selling black tar heroin retail like pizza. And so they just kind of explain. And that, that's really what got me into all of this. I backed in. And you can say that very clearly. I backed into the story. Most people come at this story first with the pain pills. The pain pills are everywhere in their towns like in Ohio someplace or West Virginia or what have you, Indiana. And then heroin comes along and they go, oh, wow, heroin. Wow. Didn't know where that came from. And for me, it was more like I wanted to under write about heroin traffickers, but in order to understand their brand new market, I had to write about the opioid prescribing and the new and the, re the opioid revolution in American medicine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. You know, there's this huge debate on does the supply create the demand or does the demand create the supply? This is like yeah, raging debate, <laughs> definitely on Twitter. Um, it sounds like what you're saying is a little bit of both. The supply of the pain pills created the demand for the heroin and the demand for the heroin no, this created all starts this with, market. When I was living in Mexico, I had not thought too deeply about this issue. And in Mexico, it's very handy to believe that demand governs everything because that means that the gringos are responsible for our drug traffickers and all that kind of stuff. And there's some truth to that. But um, once I began to really dig into um, all the roots of this, I began to understand that in this case, talking about opioids, um, it, it was supply created the demand. We did not have any kind of problem with opioids um, before pharmaceutical companies began mightily marketing and promoting to doctors and pressuring doctors and bringing pressure to bear on doctors to prescribe these as the new cure-all for all American pain. And um, it's it's really important to understand that. I mean, the, the prescribing begins in 96. You can see it. it the, the graphs are very clear. It takes off like an airplane leaving the tarmac. That that's that was our prescribing over the of, of opioid painkillers for the next I don't know, 15, whatever years it was, 17 years, it began to then decline, but not to the point where it had been, you know. And so my feeling is that this was very clearly uh, a case of where excess supply simply began creating demand, uh, certainly among people who had never gotten involved in that. I, I, I was out in Hazard, Kentucky recently. It's a very interesting town because like almost the buckle on the opioid belt of Kentucky, this town, Mitt. Middle deep Ab Appalachia, you know, and I was speaking with a woman out there, um, and she was saying she was remembering those years, and she said, you know, we used to just all get together, have a party, and drink beer, and have a bonfire down by the river or something like that, you know, and then within about a year, all that ended, and all it was was pills. There was never ending pills. Everybody I knew got addicted. Everybody, I, she was addicted for ten years. She's now sober. But um, it was a remarkable transformation. Nobody was sitting around going, gee, I've got to get high on, on opioids until these massive supplies of pills. And al almost all of them were prescribed. No, they were not always prescribed to the people who actually ended up using them. Sometimes those pills were so mightily prescribed, a lot of that went just spilled out and created black markets of their own. But that's the whole point, that the, that the supply was so huge that it got into areas that nobody ever really um wanted these pills wanted, you know they they just kind of they under they, they began using them kind of like a little a lark or something like that and pretty soon the, the, and very quickly because they're opioids opioids 
with opioids, the supply creates the demand so often. And the people who knew that better than anybody were uh, the folks at Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. They understood. That's why they put out, when they put out OxyContin, they put out pills that were five milligrams and 10 milligrams and 20 and then 40 because they were dealing with doctors. They were constant, heavy sales pressure to doctors. But a lot of doctors were very reluctant to prescribe 40 milligram pills of just straight up oxycodone, which is a, a, one of the classic opioid painkillers, along with hydrocodone, to their, to their patients. And so they said, well, well, just how about, you know, just use the five milligram. It was, it was, it was an entry level way of getting doctors comfortable with the idea that they could prescribe that because they knew that you get the doctor prescribing five, it's going to give you 10 soon and then 20 and before long 40, 80. And then it's, and, and you can, you can kind of predict that in time, uh, no demand that demand will 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 grow based on the supply that you are you are providing, and so the supply created demand when it came to this. Now, um, this was also helped, of course, by certain governmental institutions, FDA. It certainly helped by JCO, the Hospital Accreditation Agency, that said you have this is the new way of treating pain. You have to be prescribing this. If not, you get dinged as a as a doctor or a hospital. Um, you know, the VA was very big into this. There was a lot of other pressures, but certainly you just come down to it. We had no real demand, a very static demand for pain pills and, um, and for heroin in this country before all this. And then all of a sudden the supply just explodes and, 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 and folks who, again, who, who don't really have any desire to be addicted to anything, all of a sudden they find, I've talked to too many people that, which that's for whom that's, that was the, that was the case. And so in this case, because of the nature of opioids, because of the extraordinarily physical dependency that they create, supply creates demand. And that remains the case with fentanyl, but we can talk about that later. So that's kind of, in my view, um, I don't, I think I changed my perspective because my reporting was showing me that the way I had been thinking about this was not correct. It was not true that demand, that there was this huge demand, people clamoring for it. Yeah, there was some, a little bit of that. There was some people saying, yeah, we need pain. We need tools to create, to treat pain, et cetera, et cetera. But it was the overwhelming supply that led to so many people uh, getting caught up in it and destroying their lives. I mean, these are people's lives were mightily damaged. And some of them, many of them, of course, lost their lives in all this. Right. There's a lot to respond to there, but I want to make sure that we the, the one that the thing that really. You say you changed your perspective. Yeah. What perspective changed? That I, I believed when I was in Mexico without having thought too deeply about any of this or really done much reporting on it, that demand was the key driver of these drug problems. Right. And it could have been I have not studied um to some degree, I studied the crack thing, but the cocaine thing early on and out of coming out of Colombia in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, I've not studied that. And so I'm not going to make any pronouncements about how I feel about that. I can say that as I began to look into this problem, there's no doubt in my mind that it was supply 
relentless, very potent supply creating demand nationwide. Okay. And, and it's a crucial thing, relentless supply of very potent drugs. That, that combination right there is, is, uh, uh, is, is, will create demand where there wasn't. And this is common in capitalism. Did you ever demand a tablet before <laughs> Apple came up with one, invented one? No, I did not. Nobody did. Nobody said, yeah, I got to have this little tablet thing and I write on, and, you know, that kind of thing. Nobody had that in mind. You, you can create demand very easily with supply. And that is, um, and it is especially true when you have it, when you are selling the product that you are selling is extraordinarily dominating brain chemistry, the reward pathways of the human brain. And I would tell you that it seems to me that most fast food companies, gambling companies, video game, <laughs> they understand this and they are actively engaged in making sure their supply is frictionless, right? That's why you have the logos on fast food companies never change because they're triggers. They're, it's like, oh, there's McDonald's, there's Burger King, Pizza Hut. Nobody on Pizza Hut. This is why, you know, you have, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, people fight for space. Uh, soda companies fight for space in grocery stores. They right. want their supply right there for easy access. At eye level. And you pay for your spot on the shelf. Precisely. Right. Precisely. You know, it's funny. I'm just think the thing that's coming to my mind, so random, but, you know, I'm a former... I used to invest in tech companies or work for a firm that invested as a VC. And it's the common phrase used in VC is, is it a painkiller or is it a drug? You want to invest in products that are either a painkiller or a drug. You don't want to invest in something that's a vitamin. And as a founder, you certainly don't want to build something that's a vitamin because, you know, no one wants to buy a vitamin. You want a painkiller or drug. Right. This is a phrase used every day by like millions of people that work in tech. Um but I think that's because well, you're talking about a painkiller and a drug. Yes, right, exactly. I think that that's because people killed the pain in and business, got people high. Right, people people in business understand kind of the the neuroscience of what of addiction and what keeps people buying, what keeps people triggered and craving, and and all the rest. Um, you know, think about and and it's it's it, fast food is an immensely immensely important example in all this, if you ask me. Um, what have they done for fast food? They have stripped away the nutrients. They have stripped away the fiber. So they just hit your brain real quick with all the really essential elements that we have, we evolved to crave fat, sugar, salt, whatever it happens to be. Think about chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets, in my view, are like crack cocaine, right? What have, how have you, how do you, what happens on, 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 on cocaine? You take a leaf and you chew it, you get mildly buzzed. You process all that fiber out of there and you turn it into cocaine and it hits your brain like a rocket. And then you bake that cocaine in a microwave with water and baking soda and you smoke the rock that can results and boom, it's, it's just It's just such a blast to your brain. Well, Have you ever tried? It? I have not. I have not. But I've covered all these things so much that it, it's... You know, I'm not. I'm. I'm sorry. My, my those are not going to be. I'm just not going to do that. I've seen too much damage done yeah. by people who have who have, uh, two people who have who have, who have tried those things. So, um, uh, but that's what you do as a reporter. You know, you find people 
and you train them, you talk to them and you interview them endlessly, people, different people. And I, you know, I've, I've, I've seen the changes in methamphetamine, seen the changes in, 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 in cocaine. Chicken nuggets are just like that. They, they take chicken, they strip it of all fiber, they turn it into chicken clay and they turn it into a nugget and then they put it in salt. I mean, they, 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 which is salt and fat. And then they add the dip and that sugar and boom. To me, it feels very much like what they do with crack cocaine. All right. Well, I'm glad you're going there with the corporations acting like drug dealers, because you also talk a lot about in your book, the drug dealers acting like corporations. Yep. And I think that this is where the rubber hits the road is the nuance of like what is sort of morally OK and what is not right. Giving someone some Percocet after they get their wisdom teeth. So that's the only time in my whole life I've ever taken an opioid was after I got my wisdom teeth out. I think I got couple of Percocets or Vicodins or something like that. Yeah. And I actually, I will never, well, who knows, maybe one day I will forget this, but I vividly remember the first one I took, it didn't like really help. I didn't feel much. The second one really cut the pain. And then I remember as it was wearing off, starting to feel really bad. Like I started crying, you know, I was in high school at the time. And I remember, um, I was like, I started feeling really off and was crying and getting, feeling really weird. And so I remember I was like, okay, I'll take another one. And then I immediately felt better. And it was, uh, it's this, it's like, you know, I must have been 13 or 14 years old. Um, And, you know, I got five pills or something. It was over soon enough. I ended up being fine. But I've seen, I've actually seen now a couple of friends who after surgeries, you know, you get a bottle of 30 pills. They have, one of my good friends told me um, she felt the addiction within like five or 10 pills. She yeah. basically felt the um, withdrawal effects coming on. And she had to taper herself down off OxyContin. And she's, you know, very organized, like successful executive. Um, but she immediately felt it. This story that's coming together, um, I mean, you, you talk about so many different people who were giving out these pills, right? It was, right. And, and none of them saw themselves as starting... A, someone on a path towards drug addiction and ultimate death, right? If you're a dentist, you know, you talked about the dentists who were giving out 30 pills for a wisdom tooth. And they knew that the wisdom tooth only hurts for a few days. Um, but they were worried that if they didn't give out the 30 pills, then people would go to a different dentist. For or people would the... call them and say, right. oh, I need more. And they want, it was generally, I think a lot of times was to keep people from calling. Here and give you a big bottle because the idea was the great lie was that these pills are non-addictive for anyone who's who's a pain patient who's in pain, and that is true for some people, but it's not true for every single person. And you need to do some checking on what the background of these people are. But we never did any of that. It was just like blanket, a blanket approach, one tool to create to to treat. Um, something that is connected to the central nervous system and the um, and the reward reward pathways in 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 our in our brain. And every time you use one tool to treat something that complex and that individualized, you are going to run into trouble. And that's and we're still living with the consequences of those ideas. And the, its truth is, I'm not a dentist, um, but I do believe that there was no reason most of the time to give people with with wasn't tooth withdrawal, um, extraction, um, um, opioids, uh, ibuprofen works pretty well. in, in that is what I'm, my, my understanding is now 
you can talk to Dennis and they can argue with me and I'm happy to hear their arguments. But but that's that was definitely my feeling. I got my wisdom teeth out. They never gave me, I, this was pre-opioid. But again, that, that's the point. They, they, I didn't have any problem with pain. They gave me ibuprofen and I was, this was late 80s, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but that was the thing. Everyone was prescribing this stuff. I got I got 60 Vicodin to take home with me after an appendix operation. Take as needed is what I was told. This was before I really was involved in this in this topic at all. And, and I just thought it was Tylenol or glorified Tylenol or something like that. You know, I took two pills because I don't like taking pills at all. And and 58 of those pills were in my medicine cabinet for four years until I began this project on 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 became dreamland and then that's when i disposed of them right and people totally save the the pills and kids get into them and yeah people abuse the system so there were a couple things that were really interesting on this related to this that you mentioned in the book so one i have a quote here you said our revolution in neuroscience research has shown that around 30 percent of people have a genetic disposition for addiction but no matter what a person's genetic disposition no one gets addicted to drugs they haven't tried Correct. And that's that's a common statement by neuroscientists and addiction scientists and all that kind of thing, because if you don't have a supply in front of you, you're not going to get addicted to that to that drug. I would say that somewhere between like 20, 25, 30 percent. But no one really knows what gene that is yet. We're still struggling to figure out what are the or genes that actually lead to that. But the problem is with opioids. And you see this, you saw this with the with the, the opioid epidemic is that the longer you are exposed to them, doesn't matter what your disposition is, the greater the chance of you getting addicted, even though you may not have that same disposition. Here's, here's a, a, a horrifying story that I heard from a woman I've interviewed several times in Eastern Tennessee. Um, this woman was, was given um, uh, Oxycontin for uh, foot fungus. Now, that's an insane idea to provide, to prescribe someone Oxycontin for foot fungus. But she was, and, and this doctor later got just, uh, removed from medicine, thankfully, but not before he created enormous damage to this woman's life. And she was in a period, this was like 2000, 2001, I believe it was, where she was in a period where she believed that you need to finish the bottle. They give, you give you a pill oh bottle goodness. of whatever it was, and you need to finish it, that that's part of the, the treatment. And so she did, and she is has been addicted to opioid painkillers for the rest. Lost her kid. I mean, just horrible, hor- horrible stuff that I don't even want to tell you about. That's so so awful. The strange thing is, one day as I was, I've been, t- I've talked to her four or five times on the phone and in person, and um, it struck me that she has no, she had no disposition. For, she doesn't smoke. She doesn't drink. drink she doesn't sm- um, drink coffee. There is no other addictive substance in her life except for um, now fentanyl because she's been transitioned by the drug supply to fentanyl, uh, but, but starts with um, painkillers many, many years ago. And, and so, and, and I just began to think, gosh, what would have happened if this doctor had said, um, you need to wash your feet more often, or maybe there's a, like a, 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 a um, uh, kind of an athlete's foot fungus we can uh, antifungal we can give you instead of oxycontin this woman's life has been completely des- destroyed and um because of that but uh, she was one of these people i began to think she has no other disposition for addiction she doesn't i couldn't believe it she 
smoke, doesn't drink, doesn't drink alcohol, doesn't drink coffee, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway. Yesterday I was talking to a friend and we were talking about drug dealers. Mm -hmm. And she said something like, these drug dealers have no regard for human life. And I was thinking about some of these comments made by drug dealers that are mentioned in the book and how similar they are to the doctors. Things like, well, people, you know, people are in pain. I'm taking them out of pain. I think you you quoted a doctor who said, you know, the, the, the pills make people happy. I want to make people happy. So it was something yeah. about happiness. There was right? fulfillment. It was an enormous fulfillment from doctors. Part of the thing, reason the opioids get, became so big was that doctors found some kind of fulfillment in making people happy when they left. That was a big part of why you become a doctor. Most doctors are not quacks. Most doctors get in this because they really want to help people. And if you give them a prescription and they are like, thank you, doc, you are a, you are a saint. You know, that kind of thing. Right. It, 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 opioids allowed them to fulfill that basic need that doctors themselves had, you know, um, to that. Right. And I found that most drug traffickers and drug dealers that I've interviewed um, would not, would, would have a number of rationales about why they're not bad, bad people. And particularly the Mexican guys that I interviewed for the first book, um, you know, they were like, well, um, first of all, some, I, I suspect a few of them didn't really know what they were doing. That's, that's certainly a possibility. I'm not going to deny it. Um, but also then they were, they remember what it felt like to go home, having left poor, to go home back to little town in Nayarit, Mexico with perfume and sneakers and stacks of Levi's 501 jeans and be the king around the plaza and have all these men who once laughed at you because you were such a poor urgent. And now we're coming up and asking you for, you know, your best buddy and eating, drinking the beer that you provided. You know, there's a, a, a great t-shirt that to this day, I wish I had purchased in a liquor store in down, South Central LA one day that I came upon a number of years ago. It said, uh, La Vida Recia. Porque cuando eres pobre, te humilla. And that means the fast life, drug life. Because when you're poor, they humiliate you. And so many people migrate as immigrants, as, you know, people who are working in legitimate jobs up here, maybe illegally up here, but, but in legitimate jobs nevertheless, or people who are in dope. All, it's all about trying to end humiliation. I wrote an entire book. My second book was about that element of why people migrate. And it's an extraordinarily important thing when everyone around you has a key to something that is extraordinarily profitable, like dope, to, to get the girls to talk to you, to be able to actually marry someone you might want to, that kind of thing. The only way you're going to do it is, is when you come home with the kind of money that boys all around you, guys that you went to school with, kindergarten with maybe, are coming back home with. And that's a narcotic, the money is a narcotic just as much as the dope. And I found guys uh, in this one town in Mexico, they, would, they were really addicted to the money. They were addicted, what they were addicted to is coming home the king, mm -hmm. you know, and seeing how mm -hmm. they were respected. 
and how mm-hmm. people, older guys would come up and ask them for loans. Oh my God. Wow. That is a narcotic right there. You're just are like top of the heap at that point, you know? And that mm-hmm. is, so a lot of these guys, if you talk to them, you know, in a prison visiting room alone, they will, they will be very decent guys, you know? And, but when it's money involved, the Sacklers prove this, you know, when it's money involved, you will behave in ways that you later might be greatly embarrassed uh, by because you are addicted to that, the cash, the, the Sacklers, it's very clear if you read the, 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 the criminal complaints against the Sacklers, all these emails and internal reports and memoranda there, they were behaving like addicts. But the money, but it wasn't dope. It was money and mil- hundreds of millions of dollars. They never could get enough. Mm-hmm. So. There was this line in the book where you said, where you're talking about one of the dealers and he said he had no ideas, no idea where his pills ended up, nor had he any idea if they killed anyone, though he thought not because of the care he took in mixing. I thought that was so insightful. Right. To, uh, looking into them and it made it made so much sense to me i was thinking about in that moment when i read that when um a classmate of mine from harvard business school yeah uh, we were all talking about what jobs we were going to take after college or after a uh, business school and she said she was going to the marketing department of the painkiller division of purdue and i was thinking what other division is there of purdue <laughs> <laughs> sorry sorry I, yeah I don't know. But um, I was thinking, you know, it's e- like it's easy to demonize drug dealers like they're out there on the street selling death. Right. But you can look at it from a different point of view. You could say, well, they might think if they're not selling, someone else will. And whatever someone else is selling might be worse quality or, you know, have different chemicals in it. Their product might be better. They might say, OK, well, people are already going to buy anyway, so we might as well you know, I might as well be a part of this. Like, it's not my fault that people want this. If they don't buy fentanyl from me, they'll buy it from someone else. Just as someone joining a marketing division is going to say, well, there's other companies selling painkillers just as a doctor or a dentist may say, OK, well, if I don't give out the 30 pills, they're going to go to my neighbor for the yeah. extraction. All kinds so, of rationale. All kinds of rationales right. you can provide. And, uh, you know, and the main thing is, I think crucial in all this is that you don't actually see and know very well the person in f- who is who is mightily being destroyed by by this as soon as that becomes part of the thing then all of a sudden the, the qualms enter but it's it's like anything you know it's like why is there so much more interest or sensitivity um with regard to this issue now as opposed to when I was writing the first book, Dreamland, and, and could find nobody wanted to talk to me. It was really like on, nobody cared about this topic at all. Well, why is there now? Because so many people know a story of somebody near them. The more stories you hear, the more people you talk to, the more places you encounter this, the more you see how widespread it is, the more the feeling is. And I think a lot of the, 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 the trafficker guys, they were helped by the fact they didn't speak any English. You know, they were helped mm. by the fact that their connection with the addict was long enough to give for that guy to give him 50 bucks and me to give you 10, five pills or 10, I'm, I'm sorry, five balloons of heroin or whatever it was, you know, or with the pills now, you know, that contain fentanyl, you know, here's a bunch of pills, 
boom, you're on your way. And the guys that I was writing about, they didn't speak. I rarely, I found only one guy who spoke any English. So all my interviews were in Spanish with these guys because the other, and, and so because of that, they didn't really know, they didn't have like the deep feeling of who they were dealing with as people. And that helps. Mm -hmm. I mean, wasn't that the, the key to why, um, um, bombers in, uh, in, in, uh, and U.S. bombers over Vietnam just could do their job because they never saw what exactly happened. We are we are very much willing to be convinced of you know the the righteousness of our of our of what we do, if so long as we don't see the human cost. And I think that that was for those drug traffickers kind of the same same idea. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, <laughs> let's, let's take this a level deeper. So you're talking about people are very willing. There's all kinds of rationale when you don't see the person and people are very willing to be convinced of their innocence in all this. So th maybe this is going to be a little out there, but I used to work for McKinsey uh -huh. and I've been seeing, I've seen, I, I'm aware of the role they played in yep. this. And I worked for that company from or firm, the firm, as it's referred to, uh, from 2008 until 2010. Okay, then. I have been very vocal on Twitter about the harm that I think illegal fentanyl and meth dealers are, are causing on the streets of San Francisco and sure. the serious repercussions I believe they should face, mainly as a deterrent. This is my personal view, which I, I would like to discuss with you. But a lot of people are responding, you're the one who should be you know, penalized. You worked at McKinsey. McKinsey caused a million deaths. Now, I worked with banks and um, medical device companies. Yeah. But I did work for that firm. I did work that funded, you know, fueled that firm. I generated income that kept that, you know, I was a part of that sure. firm. To what extent do I have moral culpability or responsibility i don't know if i'm not, I'm not sure if i want if i know enough to to I, I would say this though that there's no doubt that mckinsey um was a a, a fundamental motor behind purdue pharma's sales approaches because it, it was continually um advising them on what to do and 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 how to better extract money from each per doctor and and a variety of things like this. One place, by the way, you really want to read uh, to get a full I idea of this is the criminal complaint filed mm -hmm. against the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma by the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. That's uh, got a lot on this. Um, it's a 277-page report, and I, I, you know, all coming from internal memoranda, emails, et cetera. That's really, really fantastic. From a journalist's standpoint, I was like thrilled because there was no way I was going to get that stuff, you know. But um, there's no doubt that, that um, uh, McKinsey, um, you know, seeing enormous profits be made, signs on with uh, Purdue and, and provides all kinds of little, you know, I think the, the worst example was when they proposed a rebate for every dead body um, that, that to the chains, to the, I'm sorry, the pharmaceutical chains, to CVS, Walgreens, et cetera, when a customer of theirs died, in order to keep those chains stocking OxyContin, McKinsey proposed to Purdue that, that they pay a, um, 
you know, a, I'm a, I guess I don't have any other better word than a rebate for a, a, my, my understanding I don't have it in front of me right now, but it's like something like $14,000 per, per dead body. Um, I would say Purdue um, did a lot of, um, I think, outrageous stuff in all of this. They did have the common sense to say, no, that's probably not a good idea. So they didn't do that. But I mean, McKenzie was all on doubling down on this, you know, and and there was it was constantly trying to figure out how to better use um, those uh, those discount cards that you get this number of, of, of you know, you get these coupons for frequent frequent buyer kinds of things, all that kind of stuff. You know, it, they, too, s did not examine their moral compass i would say at all it's certainly not carefully um and 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 so you get um a a company two companies very large very moneyed very powerful lobbying forces lots of lawyers and so on combining and and the effect is felt you know across middle america across low income working class america in 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 profound and devastating ways that these folks never saw. That's the whole idea. They could do this. They never spent any time in in the bottoms of, of Lucasville, of Ohio, where I spent like uh, uh, was was when I was doing stories on on Portsmouth, Ohio, for my my book Dreamland. I mean, this is a a, a little a part of the town of Lucasville where people, you know, it's cars up on blocks and mobile homes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the bottoms being right near the river so every 10 years the river floods and you get flooded with it and everyone's on oxycontin and this kind of thing and there was you know this was the kind of place where that was most upsetting to me to see the devastation and and when i finally pieced it all together and 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 read the complaints by the by the massachusetts criminal attorney general i mean I, you could see that these two companies were were combining enormous power money and expertise too to push this stuff on places like the bottoms of lucasville which i just thought later was just simply outrageous what is your own personal culpability i'm not sure i want to talk about that because i don't know you too well now and I, I we've met but i don't know you and 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 i don't want to say this is you know i i don't want to be the the sanctimonious judge i will just say this that mckinsey um, is has enormous, you know, amount to do with what with what was visited on, you know, many neighborhoods of of uh, many places of America where people, especially where people were very very vulnerable. Right. I was trying to think about the other side of this. You know, I'm feeling all this complex feelings towards my former employer. Like, am I proud to have worked at McKinsey or not? I, I, I didn't yeah. work with any pharmaceutical companies, but um, mm -hmm. my colleagues did. You know, I'm just, so I've been thinking about this. And I was like, okay, what would be an argument that they aren't culpable? And you could argue, you know, well, what about the fact that there's lots of things that create death? Um, cars, a lot of people die in car accidents. You know, if you're a, if you're a manufacturer of bicycles and people are getting in bicycle accidents and dying, are you culpable? And I could, I was trying to think through the other lens of, could I could see how, again, this sort of rationalization that, oh well, this this drug helps so many people, you know, yeah, so some people get the... addicted and die. That's sort of the, and then and then there was all this um, moral shaming around the addiction too. Like something you mentioned in the book was, people saw addiction as oh those kids weren't raised right, 
right? If you're addicted. So you could imagine, I can imagine a world in which partners McKinsey sitting around being like, all right, we know a lot of people are dying, but like that isn't our fault. That's the fact that they're drug addicts. If they weren't dying from Oxycontin, they and would be And that was the Sackler addicts. approach. That was the Sackler rationale. Uh, Richard Sackler, the son of, um, oh, I can't remember which which original Sackler brother. I think it was um, you know, Raymond. Anyway, whatever the case, um, uh, said, yeah, these are just drug addicts. We need to focus on make, turning the mirror back onto drug addicts, not away from us kind of thing. Um, that's a paraphrase, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, that, yeah, of course, I mean, you get into the moral Dilemmas that that that, that small-time drug dealers out of uh, Jalisco, Nayarit, also play into. It's a common thing. I have learned as a journalist 35 years now that everybody believes they're right. I've only met a couple of people who knew, kind of snidely whiplash type devious people who knew they were way wrong and did it anyway. Everybody you meet will tell you why they are right and why they do these things. There's enormous amounts of gray. The black and white, the soap opera villain and the, the angelic saint, you know, those are, those are rare. And the, the one, everybody ha knows, not, not only knows, but will tell you all the arguments why they're, they're, they're right. The man, the guy that I talked about in Dreamland, you know, I, I went through this with him. Um, I won't name him, um, but a guy who was one of the first, he was the first dealer um, connected to this town in, in, in Mexico um, to go east of the Mississippi River with the black tar heroin and the, and, the, and the pizza delivery system for heroin. And and he, you know, he's a longtime drug user, longtime methadone clinic veteran and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's got, got a very sketchy past and all that. And he was telling me, well, you know, I never gave anybody their first hit. I was just giving people what, you know, it's the classic kind of uh, free trade, mm -hmm. you know, idea that I'm just giving people what what they want, you know. And in Sinaloa, by the way, Sinaloa happens to be kind of like the center of the Mexican free trade ethos more than almost any other state in, except for maybe some parts of, along the border. Uh, Sinaloa is where the free trade ethos is absolutely kind of the core of, of, of life. And so drug trafficking kind of fit pretty easily. That's one reason. There are many. There's not, there's not, that's not the only reason why Sinaloa is the center of drug trafficking in Mexico. But, but certainly it was that idea that you just give people what they want, you know? And, mm -hmm. um, and besides, they're demanding it. They're demanding it. Well, it doesn't work so well when the, the, the actual case is no, they're not demanding it. This is a supply-driven thing. And I think that that is one of the things that gradually creeped, crept up on me as I was doing the first book. And by the time I was in the middle of uh, uh, The Least of Us, I was like, this is all about supply. This is the fentanyl story, the methamphetamine story. These are all about supply creating um, uh, 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 demand. So, and synthetics do that very, very well. Mm -hmm. So if it's okay, I'd like to fast forward a bit into more the current day. I think this sure. is this has been a good we've covered a lot around the origins of where this crisis took off. By the way, I've asked ChatGPT what the deaths are from drug overdoses compared to I brought up, you know, bicycles and cars. So I, I quickly asked it um, 
approximately, so between 2010 and 2019, there were 841,000 drug overdoses in the United States, almost a million. For context, there were 3,000 deaths from bicycle accidents. And there were, um, oh, it did it by the year. So there were similar number of deaths from motor vehicle traffic fatalities. There's 36,000 a year. Okay, so half as many um, as drug overdoses. So there were 84,000 deaths per year over the course of that decade of drugs and then 36,000 uh, car crashes. So just to put, I mean, one of the reasons that I think this topic really matters is the sheer numbers. I mean, almost a million deaths. If you look at how our country reacted to COVID and, by the way, the vast majority of people dying from COVID were very elderly and sick, right? People yeah. with comorbidities. Sure. Um, and you could, yeah. And the amount of precaution that our society took. Mm -hmm. And then sort of the lack of discussion and outrage and um, <laughs> around the drug crisis. And I see yeah. it even in my Twitter stats. When I tweet about crime or COVID, some of these hot button issues, the tweets just explode. When I tweet about the drug overdose crisis, it doesn't resonate as much. And I think a lot of people sort of view it as, oh, well, it's out there. It's this doesn't affect me. Um, I'm losing my train of thought here. I think what I'd like to talk about is San Francisco okay. and what's going on here. And the fact that we have a very entrenched belief in our culture that um, that the demand generates the supply. And therefore, what we really have to do is reduce the demand. And the beliefs here are along the lines of what you really need to reduce demand is you have to reduce income inequality. You have to increase housing. You have to deal with traumas. You mm -hmm. have to deal with poverty. Yeah, probably. And you need a medical, you know, a better medical health care system. Those are some of the arguments that come up in sort of on the other side of the coin of what you're saying, right? I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about where am I trying to go here? I think I'm losing my train of thought. I'm I'm um let let me try this again. Okay, sure. I'm gonna cut go all ahead. that out. <laughs> let me try it again. Take all your right, time. so let's fast forward, let's fast forward a little bit to today. We've talked a lot about the opioid crisis. Can you walk us through how how that led to? I mean, A, is that ending the the opioid, you know, the world of doctors prescribing pain pills? Is that still going on or is that kind of ending? And what's happening now, basically? What's, what's yeah, what so do you see going that, down? Let's get into the latest book, The Least Sure, of Us, sure, Matthew yeah. Fentanyl. I would say that, that the opioid epidemic, as it was known a few years ago, as I described in the Dreamland book, is probably still with us to a certain degree. I mean, I think in some areas that those pills are overprescribed. I would say that there's significant reduction. I would say, too, that the, to some degree, there's too much of a reduction. There's people who, who actually need those pills. They're, they they make sense for an older person who's got arthritis and or terminal cancer or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which those pills actually make quite a bit of difference, and, and I think we may have gone too far in that regard. Um, I, w I would say that, that what then began to happen was all of that dovetailed with a gradual and then a, a fairly rapid evolution among 
me, the in the Mexican drug trafficking world away from plant-based drugs. They learned this first with the methamphetamine in the 90s, that it's much better, much better business to make your drugs rather than grow them. First of all, there are no seasons. You could do it all year long if you got the chemicals to do it. It's in a lab, so the helicopters can't see you. Um, and and it's much easier to smuggle. The profit margin's much, much higher. And you don't have as many, you don't need land or irrigation or sunlight. You don't need farmers. All that kind of stuff it just goes away. And it, it's just a bunch of headaches. For the typical trafficker, that's just a bunch of headaches. So it's better to a few people in a small lab or not so small lab, and, and you've got, you know, a much better, better idea. They have learned that with methamphetamine in the 90s. And then, as I talk about in my book, the Mexican trafficking world was um, clued into the idea that there was also a synthetic heroin, as they called it, out there in, um, uh, by an underground chemist in 2005 and six. Um, and I talk all about this in the book, but but this guy was uh, hired by the Sinaloa drug cartel, elements of the cartel, to make ephedrine, which is the, a key chemical in one of the ways of making methamphetamine. He decides he knows how to make fentanyl. In fact, he's done prison time in the United States for doing that. And so he makes fentanyl, and they get mad at him. But he says, no, this is the most powerful, profitable drug you've ever seen. And that is when the, the, the lights go on in the minds of elements of the Sinaloa drug cartel, and pretty soon the entire drug world there, that, that, that a, a synthetic heroin, very much like, a, like methamphetamine for stimulants, is out there and can be made. And that is really kind of what begins this. And, and, and the first, but then, then they lose that guy. He's, he's, he's then, you know, arrested. His, his lab is, they talk about all this in the book. Um, his lab is, is busted and they lose access to him. They never forget fentanyl or synthetic, heroina synthetica, as they called it. Um, and then um, the, the Chinese chemical world begins to understand that they can market to um, certain areas like, like Ohio and Kentucky and West Virginia and Indiana, places like that. And they begin to send in little packages in the mail, um, market on the internet and send a little package to these, you know, a pound, a half a pound of, of, of fentanyl. And these guys, these dealers in, in these areas in Ohio, Akron and Cleveland and places like that, um, think of fentanyl, begin to think of fentanyl as like their lottery ticket. Oh my God, this is, I can't believe we, the problem is they got to mix it. And they really, really, really bad at mixing this drug. And, and that's when you begin to see all these horrible mixes, all these clusters of overdose deaths. If you look back in 2014, 15, 16, right in there. You see these big clusters of overdoses in the news in Huntington, West Virginia, and Cincinnati, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then the trafficking world in Mexico begins to figure out how, again, to make fentanyl. And that is when you begin to see fentanyl go from this regional problem in the opioid region, the ground zero of the opioid problem, which is Ohio and Kentucky and all these places, to a national problem because the supply explodes just explodes. There's so much of it. And so the first time it goes east and west and the first time, just like the, just like, by the way, the pain pills did, you know, starts in the Appalachia, the Rust Belt, Ohio, Kentucky, et cetera. And, and by like 2001 or two or three, boom, it's, uh, it's exploded to both coasts with the, with the, with the, with the supplies really remarkably bit, uh, much bigger. 
And that's what happens with fentanyl. And you begin to see this. California had its first cluster overdose in Chico, California in 2018. And after that, it's like both, both coasts are just inundated with it because the supply is unending and everyone can kind of see. Now there's no, they solve. It's an amazing idea. They solve the drug dealer, the street dealer's major issue has always been, where do I get my dope to sell? Every time I get a good connection, he gets arrested, he gets killed, he's, he leaves the state, he's on the run, whatever, and I got to find another guy. Well, now there's none of that. You can find this stuff anywhere. People are dealing the, the biggest schmoes you ever saw, people who are no, ben, no business being in the, in the top echelons of the drug business are dealing with kilos and kilos of this stuff. That is what happens when, uh, when, when you just produce so much supply. There is no evidence that there was a huge demand for fentanyl when all this began. Fentanyl creates its demand through excess supply. And so you th see it mixed into cocaine. And then cocaine users, if they don't die, they become fentanyl addicts, which have to use every single day instead of buy cocaine once a week or twice a week or whatever. And so you get, you get that mixed into to, um, uh, uh, methamphetamine. And now you're seeing, of course, a new vehicle of administration, which is the counterfeit pill that looks like a Percocet, looks like a Xanax bar, looks like a oxycodone generic 30 milligram. And that's all these pills have is, is fentanyl. In them, and so you get lots of kids, especially during COVID, buying the stuff, thinking they're buying an anti-anxiety pill or a sleeping pill or whatever it is, and all they have is fentanyl, and then those kids die or they get addicted, and and you begin to see this this kind of thing. Just but but a lot of this too is already is based on the demand that that they're trying to fill is based on the 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 supply created population of opioid addicted customers right. that started with the pain pill problem. The pent up or latent demand from the last epidemic pushing this next one. I'm right. going to read a section from your book that I just, it was just jaw dropping for me about this. You mentioned a lottery ticket. It sort of all came together for me in this section. You wrote, <clears throat> and all right, so you're talking about someone who became a dealer. An online Chinese vendor sold him a quarter kilogram, 250 grams of fentanyl for $5,000. The first order came hidden in the box of a puzzle that a family might put together on its living room table. He had it sent from China by the slowest rate, so it got lost among the millions of packages cascading into the United States every day. On the internet, he bought a high-quality pill press that churned out 5,000 pills an hour. He added a scale and powders to bind with the drug. He bought a high-quality powder mixer, avoiding the magic bullet blenders that he as he considered them too risky. He mixed a quarter milligram of fentanyl in each pill. They cost a nickel each to make, and he could sell them on the dark net to wholesalers for $2 a piece. 4,000 pills per gram, $8,000 gross from each gram that cost him $20. So on a grander scale, $2 million in revenue from that 5,000 quarter kilo of fentanyl. So just to right. repeat that, took $5,000 worth of chemicals, turned it into $2 million worth of pills. Very easy to understand why someone would view that as the lottery. Sure. You also talked about there was another section that was sort of also kind of speaks to the scale of the money flying around for these deals, uh, dealers. You talk about a drug dealer named Gibson. Um, Gibson began ordering fentanyl and carfentanyl mailed to him from China. 
By May 2016, according to court records, Gibson was selling the synthetic drugs across Akron and other nearby towns. Over the next two years, Gibson made enough from dealing this new product that his wife tallied almost $700,000 in bills at Saks Fifth Avenue. The couple added an in-ground swimming pool to their South Akron home. So compare that visual, you know, the drug dealer whose wife spends near three quarters of a million dollars at Saks in a year Mm -hmm. with what we're hearing here in San Francisco, which is, no, 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 these drug dealers are not rich and living the life. They're trafficked, they're slaves, you know, they're, and they're, they, no. are, they are forced here against their will. I mean, our, our former DA, um, Chesa Boudin, was recording himself during COVID saying, oh, these people are coming from Honduras, they're trafficked. If we arrest them, then their families will get hurt back home. So we can't do i mean his belief essentially was we can't arrest the dealers because they're the victims here i am hearing that their wives are spending seven hundred thousand dollars on sacks so the question i wanted to ask you is is there any credence to this argument that the drug dealers are victims or are they just absolutely cashing in on this situation i I would say when you come to comes down to dealers from latin america very much like the guys i wrote about in mexico city i'm 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 mex in uh, jalisco nayarit in mexico um there is a socioeconomic dynamic to it all and that is that these are generally speaking guys who have very few options economic options available and the ones they have are not very appealing like in in jalisco most of the guys who who went on to work in heroin uh were avocado farmers sugar cane farmers one of the worst jobs you can possibly have in mexico um they were butchers bakers they were that kind of thing and nothing was leading anywhere and nothing that would convince a girl to marry you and etc 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 um i can say that that because of that there is almost no chance that any of those guys were ever trafficked they were lining up to sell dope they um, the man told me his he would stand in the plaza and the families would come up to him and thank him one of them gave him a pig the other gave him a, a cow um they were there were these uh because they had given jobs to their boys you know now there's certainly a socioeconomic aspect to it but the idea that that folks are being trafficked no, this is these are life changing jobs, and my feeling is it's um, particularly when you have certain towns, and that's what's going on in Honduras. Certain towns where all the, all the guys come from, everybody begins to understand number one that this is how you get ahead, and number two that if you don't do this, you will never get ahead because because it's a very clear thing uh, in immigration in, in in Latin America. Certainly from Mexico, you see it all the time that immigration inflates the prices of everything. If you don't have a connection to dollars, you'll never be able to fill to build a well or buy a cow or, or barbed wire or a New Year's truck or any of that kind of stuff because after a while, the prices of everything is inflated or inflated beyond your ability as a Mexican making pesos to pay for it. That means every, once people begin migrating from one town, everybody has to migrate to be able to afford the... I've seen this many, many, many times. My second book's pretty much all about that. Um, that is also true, I believe, uh, although I've never been to Honduras, I have, I have t- 
certain sources that that describe these things to me, and I'm willing to be corrected if I'm if I'm wrong on this. But my feeling is, people don't need to be forced into indentured servitude to do this job, because it is a life changing job, and every all the other options around them are pretty grim. So. Um, my feeling is not is that there is no, no chance that most of those guys are are you know threatened with murder or their parents are going to be murdered if they, there might be some of that it's a, it's the dope business i'm quite sure there's some but but i have to say that that that's not why it spreads in popularity and you got to remember too the the honduran drug business has uh street drug dealing business has been going on for years I would have put them in, in I, I was investigating them in 2013 uh, when I was writing Dreamland, thinking I would put them in the book too. And it just became too complicated. And it was, it was just not something that fit well within the book that I was writing. So I never did it. But I watched Honduran drug traffickers on, on foot as opposed to the guys I was writing about who were in cars and you know responding to cell phone calls. These guys are all on foot, as you see downtown. As you see in Tenderloin and Mission and Eighth and all that pla those places, you see these guys on foot constantly. Um, a very structured business organization, business hours, et cetera, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. That that is that's a business model that everybody understands works if you if you if you work it yourself or if you are involved in it much more so than say running a little mom and pop store in your neighborhood or uh growing a corn or whatever other job you know working in the avocado orchards or in the sugar can um so my, my feeling is that there's simply no business reason why you would have to force people at the barrel of a gun to go to the united states and make more money than they could possibly make doing almost any other job just doesn't make any sense at all and i think you may be seeing some interesting reporting soon about this by the way mm -hmm. oh that is a very compelling argument um that makes sense i think there were two drug traffickers released last week or the week before in san francisco because and the argument was that they were trafficked that they yeah, well, owe sure money to the coyotes yes i mean i'm sure it sounds great if you're a, a defense attorney and you make that argument and um but there is that's just not the way I've, I've studied these business arrangements in both the drug trafficking world and in the and and in the um and in the legal world. It's in 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 Mexico. It's very very clear. Why do so many people sign up to run popsicle shops? Because that was an amazing new business opportunity, and the ones they had available to them were, you know, milking cows back home and and. Just trying to scratch out a living in in uh from uh chile or 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 corn uh, back home in michoacan i mean these business models work because they make economic sense that's why they work if you had constantly put a gun to somebody's head you would never be able to be as efficient and effective as the guys are are in um in uh in san francisco from what i've seen in other towns because they're in denver they're in portland they're in various other places Right. So, so what, okay. So it's, so just to summarize, it sounds like we've basically got drugs that are practically free 
We've got people dealing them that are making boatloads of money. We've got people who are severely addicted. And we haven't even talked about meth and what that does to the brain and the psychosis and the long-term incapacitation. Um, but basically, we have extremely dangerous synthetic drugs flooding the street that are dirt cheap, that people are highly addicted to. Okay, so we're in this situation. Why is it worse in some areas than others? Like, why... I would like, say, I are there to... are, do they have an opioid? Do they have a a, crisis, a fentanyl crisis in Mexico or in China? N not in not in Mexico. Um, and I have not been down there uh, recently to do reporting on this. But um, I have spoken to people who worked for cartels down on, on the border, and there's a very clear idea that you do not sell fentanyl to Mexicans. That's for the gringos, you know. And in fact, you can get into very serious pr trouble. If you, if you do that, uh, um, um, talk to a few people down in the Tucson area who were pretty clear about that. Um, so is, is, as in, it's a cultural thing. It's like, or, or is there, other I think it's uh, traffickers wanting to appear to be benevolent. Oh, we're going to sell it to the gringos up there. And, but anybody who does it around here, we're going to get real, you know, and I think in part, that's also because. They understand that once anybody is addicted to fentanyl or meth in Mexico, they become completely useless. You cannot rely on them to to do business. You cannot rely on them to cross the border without getting caught. You can, you know, there's all kinds of ways in which they no longer become useful. But it also helps your image if you are saying, we are not going to allow Mexicans, how noble of you. You're not going to allow Mexicans to use the, the fentanyl. You're just going to sell that to Americans. Okay, I guess. Okay, fine, whatever. You know, so... um. So that is kind of the, um, that's, that's the way it, it seems to, to, to play out. I would say that there's just such a big market now and they can see fentanyl. They understand just like the Sacklers did that if you keep selling the stuff, you're going to make, you're going to make money. This stuff is enormously addictive and you just get people who are, uh, uh, you know, on the stuff. Or you you sell it to the to the local traffic dealers in the street, the mid level and down to the street, and and they will do the rest, and you will you will continually have a great a great market. I would also say this though that there is it, it's it's a misconception to think of the Mexican trafficking world as like the GM of dope. There is no board of directors. It's a wild, roiling, throbbing, free market. When it comes to alliances, certainly there are. When it comes to fiefdoms, certainly there are. But when it comes to making the dope, it's just wide open. And there's lots of people who like the, like the, in the gold rush day, made their money by selling the shovels to the miners. There's lots of people who make their money by selling um, ingredients uh, to, to, the, to, the, to the meth makers, the fentanyl makers right. and all that kind of stuff. So to me, it feels like there is a, um, it's, it's, there's this misconception misconception of the United States that that somehow there's somebody directing this and I, I think don't, it, I think it's very imitative just like the popsicle um popsicle village was everybody saw one guy doing it and I'm going to do that too and he, you learn and just the way one guy begins to emigrate to the United States from Samora Michoacan or uh or uh Hikilpan Michoacan and pretty soon everybody's up there in the United States picking tom tomatoes in Stockton California and what have you. I mean there is a lot of that. It's a highly imitated. There doesn't need to be, first of all, nobody's gun to your head. 
clearly this is a better option for you. That's number, it's so clear. It's not really debatable, I don't think. But also, you know, you are, you are showing that you, you know, you're 16, you're 18, you're 20, 25. You're showing what a daring guy you are. You're coming home with money. You got girls who want to talk to you. Other boys see that girls want to talk to you and not to them. You come home with Levi's 501s. You come home with nice boots. You come home with a nice stereo system. You buy a new used truck, on and on and on and on like this. There's all these ways in which this helps your status, which to a lot of young men is a very potent thing. And so you kind of, that to me is how this works. It's roiling. It's people in and out of it all the time. A lot of people st spend more time because the longer they go and they see no consequences, the more they're willing to do it. One of the, one of the places that they really, the guys I wrote about in, in, out of Mexico turned into a second hub after San Fernando Valley was Portland. And the reason Portland became a, a big hub for those guys was because they could tell all the new recruits with absolute honesty and truthfulness that nothing will happen to you if you are dealing drugs here and get caught. Yeah, you'll get deported, but we'll bring you back. And my dad, who runs the crew, he'll send you to Denver now and give you another name. You know, you're Mario instead of Carlos or whatever. You know, if there's, there is a, a, a real um, provable, there's data that shows that this is true. You know people who've been arrested in Portland and really nothing happened to them. And so Portland became a secondary hub by the, by the early 1990s for these guys. And then from there, they, they went to other places. But it was largely because, according to the guys I talked to from Portland, um, that there's, there's no, the word was out that there was no consequences. You have no consequences, and very quickly, people will pick up on, well, hell, let's do it. You know, because why? Well, the only other job that I have is picking avocados or working in a little mom and pop, you know, changaro in, in, uh, in, uh, in Honduras. All right, so let's talk about consequences. Um, first of all, is there a correlation between consequences and selling drugs? I mean, do consequences reduce sale of drugs? I'm, I'm, I, I mean, I, I, because I'll set, tell you, at least in my hometown in San Francisco, people think it has nothing to do with it. They're like, yeah, no, oh, I, I, it's so, there's always going to be more supply. There's always going to be more demand. If you put one person in jail, there's someone lining up behind him. This is often the argument against um, sending drug dealers to jail. Well, you know, there certainly is truth and to the fact. Lined up. Yeah, there certainly is truth to the idea that that um, mm -hmm. if, if, if the if that there 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 will be other people. The the problem is, what do you do about that? Do you say, well, well, just don't do anything? Or do you say, as they did in Portland, uh, and they're by, without really anyone in authority, Portland's knowledge, in Portland's knowledge, became a, a major hub for these guys? Or do you say, uh, just because people murder people doesn't mean we should not arrest murderers or, or burglars or whatever. To me, it feels like you have to establish the consequences. Um, if you are going to have any chance of dealing with uh, any of this, it, it makes even more sense, in my opinion, if the drugs are fentanyl and methamphetamine. Fentanyl is the most deadly drug we have ever seen on our streets. Every time you sell anything with fentanyl in it, 
you know it's going to harm somebody. May well kill people. Why don't you just make it legal to lace cocaine with cyanide? I don't know. I mean, to me, it feels like there's this. This is a, a gross um, misunderstanding of of the the power of fentanyl to create demand. And it, it's really, really remarkable to hear that that idea. You know, this is a this is a drug that creates its own demand, and the reason it creates its own demand is because it is is the same reason it's a, such a wonderful anesthetic in the sur in the surgical setting and surgery i've had fentanyl it's a great drug it's a revolutionary anesthetic why because it 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 very quickly goes takes you into anesthesia and just as quickly can take you out of it very quick so it means that you are not 4 hours doped up on morphine it may, means that you're not nauseated vomiting whatever um, near death, in fact, sometimes with morphine, you are very quickly taken out of it. It's that it's that quick, easy in and easy out that makes fentanyl such a great surgical drug. It's a e equally tr true. It's that that nature, that characteristic of fentanyl that makes it a um, fantastic drug from a dealer's standpoint, because you are always needing to use fentanyl all day long. On heroin, you use heroin two, three times a day. On fentanyl, it's five, six, seven times a day. Down in Tucson now, there's there are uh, uh, patients I've of, of drug clinics I've interviewed um, and counselors there who also who confirm this that people are smoking fifty to eighty counterfeit pills a day. Why? Because fentanyl is like that. It takes you in and out, in and out. You are never ever far away from the, the withdrawal beast that is lurking over your shoulder. And that's what makes it a magnificent drug if you are a dealer, because you, you get clients or customers who have to buy from you all day long. All, there is no vacation. You can forget about vacation. You are going to be 100% uh, using fentanyl um, from now. And, 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 and yes, people die and, and, you know, that's, but, but, if you are if you are selling a drug that creates its own demand, it's kind of you don't really that's not really a major concern, except unless of course you're gonna be prosecuted for it. But in some areas you're not being prosecuted for this. Um, or at least it's very difficult to make the case. It's always very difficult to make the case. But my feeling is that that fentanyl, fentanyl and methamphetamine change everything. They change everything because mm -hmm. they can be made in enormous quantities, very cheap, huge profits beyond anything we've ever seen before. And they can made, be made all year round because they're synthetics. Nobody, nobody is, you know, going back to growing poppies right. after you've Which made Which is fentanyl. what was used for heroin, right? Poppies, opium poppies you use for heroin, right, exactly. So mm -hmm. nobody's going back to that if you've made a lot of fentanyl. You know, it's just cr crazy idea. Oh, and no one's going to go back to selling heroin. Right now, there's really no heroin on the streets of America. Why? I thought there was a lot of demand for heroin. Wait, what happened? Wasn't there a lot of demand for heroin? Well, fentanyl comes and creates its own demand, a whole different kind of demand, a whole different kind of use, and all kinds of problems uh, from a city or municipal or county level. But, but from a trafficker's point of view, it's, it's fantastic. So no one, wants, no one demands heroin anymore. They're all have been transitioned, passive voice, right? Have been transitioned. To, to fentanyl, right? This is what happened with the traffic, the dealer I told you about in Eastern Tennessee. 
she she and her friends she deals to maybe 20 or 30 of her friends in a town out east of knoxville and and she said we we were all pill addicts you know of course that's another demand created by supply but we'll move on from there and she said and then they began selling stuff that had fentanyl and we were all transitioned to to fentanyl and now we all are addicted to fentanyl and we cannot get off the the other point about fentanyl is it extraordinarily difficult to kick fentanyl. The, 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 the tolerance is astronomical and the, 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 um, can rise to astronomical levels is what I mean. If you survive it, the, the, the first exposures to it, but then also you have the withdrawals are just beastly, just horrible. And so you get people who once they are addicted to that, once the supply has created demand in their brains, in their bodies, will very rarely stop. Just like the Sacklers knew, just like the Purdue, Purdue Pharma salespeople knew that if you get people work using those um, prescribed those five milligram oxycontin pills, that eventually a year from now they're going to be on forty or eighty or something like that. It's a, a, a smaller version of what is now happening in fent on fentanyl. So many people, and now we don't have any more heroin on the streets. It's, it's all fentanyl here, fentanyl there. And, right. and, and, and every part of the, the, uh, of, 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 of the country, all because these are synthetics. They're made from chemicals and very easily and no seasons anymore. The part about the fentanyl creating demand that was so interesting to me, or let me rephrase that. Re um, how do I want to say this? The thing that was really interesting to me about fentanyl creating demand is how the dealers started putting it into all the other drugs. Yeah. And I've heard about this. Oh, these things are, you know, you hear about these teens, like you mentioned, this teens that think they're taking Xanax and then they're on fentanyl. And I always was wondering why would people put fentanyl in a different drug? Like if you're trying to sell Coke, why would you put fentanyl in it? And then it, uh, I felt like a total dummy when I read this line in your book. You said, um, all right. So you were quoting someone named Richard Mason, who's chief operations officer at House of Hope in Columbus, Ohio. He said they don't want fentanyl, but they get their meth or cocaine cut with fentanyl without knowing it. And they love the high and they go back for more. I don't think our clients at first were seeking fentanyl and now they're just straight up fentanyl addicts. And so then it, it was like, oh, duh, if it's cheap and easy and highly lucrative and it gets people coming back. All, and it, prevalent, it makes sense why you sprinkle it beyond, in. And prevalent beyond any thing you've ever seen before and easy to do. And you just, right. it's like Ordered salt, on, the on, internet from salt on, on food, you know. And then, so then you had this, so then you would think, all right, so fentanyl, there's this other question that um, kind of connects to that where you wrote, why would dealers want to sell a substance so powerful that it killed their customers? And you wrote individually, they probably didn't. But the power of free market competition took hold. Anybody could procure fentanyl as easily as one of those home loans a decade earlier. It was more potent than any street drug before it. Anybody selling drugs that didn't include the powerful boost of fentanyl wasn't going to have customers for very long. So then Correct. there's this whole competitive element. You're selling Xanax without it, but people are going to go back to the dealer who's selling the Xanax with it. He said dealers did not, didn't dare not mix it in. About the only way to introduce caution regarding fentanyl into the street drug world is for district attorneys to charge with murder those who sell anything containing fentanyl that ends up killing a user. Fearing they will catch a body, dealers back off. I want to ask Sometimes. you about that. 
So I mean, I'm not saying that's a rule. I'm just saying that that is the times when I've found that or, or heard that that happening. It's generally because there is a, a concerted attempt to prosecute people for selling that stuff that after after somebody dies. I guess what I'm getting at is what I'm trying to say is so it seems like the argument is this is free market gone wild. Right. No. This is sort of like the weak, all the weaknesses of the human brain, of capitalism, um, like all our all our choke points or yeah. this is hitting it hard. And so you have this exploding crisis. Yeah. And no one's really incentivized to stop if they're engaged in it. True. This line that you wrote about the only way to introduce caution regarding fentanyl into the street drug world is for district attorneys to charge with murder. I couldn't tell, is that your words or someone else's? I think that's, well, no, that's my conclusion that I've, I've seen that, that there is, there's so many reasons why you would want to sell fentanyl into whatever it is you're selling, put it there or whatever, or sell pills of it containing it. Or There's so many profit reasons, so much, mm -hmm. uh, you know, availability of supply that's a big one you know i've got this i can sell it okay i'm going to make some money this way you know um instead of saying oh well you know i don't think i should sell that because um uh, i i don't want to you know no you know it, unless you know that that there is going to be consequences for selling this stuff um that might kill somebody um and so far in a lot of areas you know it, it seems to me the parts of the united states we have seen this utter transformation of our drug supply and our drug issue and our drug question um, with synthetics now and methamphetamine and fentanyl are, are, are right up, are the two main ones. And they are everywhere, so much so that they change history. You know, I mean, you used to see uh, hi the, the history of this stuff used to be, you know, stimulants to depressants, back to stimulants to depressants every 10 or 15 years. And now it's just no cycles anymore. Just one big, you know. Fentanyl and meth together all over the country, up until including up into to New England, which never had any meth to speak of at all. And so, which but we have not come to a proper, in my opinion, understanding of how that just changes everything. How those two drugs, in enormous quantities, relentless quantities, and in enormous potency, how that changes everything. And so, we've applied ideas that were conceived pre-fentanyl, in fact, well before fentanyl ever showed up, and we're wondering why it, they don't seem to, to work uh, very well because fentanyl and meth change everything. There's nothing about um, addiction, treatment, and all that kind of stuff that, that remains the same. Once the supply is as vast and as potent, cheap, prevalent, et cetera, and relentless, as we are seeing come out of Mexico in the last five to 10 years, if you're talking about methamphetamine. Right. Is the argument, um, so the, I often go head to head with the harm reduction, uh, what's the word to use them, Ad activists. And they will say things like you, there's no point in having um, a criminal justice element to this, situation you know if you arrest people you're arresting 
the human traffic dealers and there'll be another dealer around the corner. And at the end of the day, the only way that we're really going to save lives is people have to want to go to treatment. They have to hit rock bottom. You wrote in your book very clearly in, in this new world, rock bottom is death. It is not, you know, you've got people living in tents without running water who are getting raped and prostituting themselves. You know, if that isn't rock bottom that would encourage you to go to treatment, what is? That resonated for me because we do have many open treatment beds in San Francisco. People are not taking them. Um, there are, Many people are offered treatment over and over and over again. They're living in a tent on the side of the road and they're like, no, I'm fine. Yep, that's pretty the much the question I'm asking is like, what do you what do you do? Do you do you? Well, I mean, I mean, I think Mike, I, I mean, I wouldn't have said this f three, five years ago be before I started working on this book. But the, the reporting that I've done has just simply convinced me uh, very much the way I was convinced that that supply is more the issue when it comes to opioids. When you're talking about opioids, it's supply is the issue. It creates demand. Well, in the same to by the same token. I I believe that 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 all of this changes what our response ought to be. And one of the key things about these drugs is, and you can see this in tent encampments and and many other places all around the country, and that is that people who are on these drugs um, have basically you can see various very clear evidence that they have lost that very profound power of self-preservation. Um, they are living on the street. Um, I, I'm in the Mid Midwest now, or I'm in Nashville, maybe I guess that's the South actually, but close to the Midwest, where the temperatures get very bitter and um, people don't leave, even when the temperatures turn lethal. So I was talking with an ER doc uh, who said, yeah, we began getting the, this methamphetamine driving everybody uh, to mental illness. And we began to see a very quickly increase in um, the um, uh, rates of or the numbers of of uh, of uh, frostbite cases, people losing digits because they wouldn't leave the tents right. even as the temperatures dropped. It's that remarkable thing. Every drug of abuse does this, by the way. Every you know, when I was seven, no, I'm sorry, when I was ten, we lived in the Bronx in New York, and one day we found ourselves, my dad and I found ourselves in um, can't remember even what in the Bowery, which back then was a serious skid row. It was a hipster heaven now, but it, it not so back in the 70s, in the right. late 60s. The flop houses, right? Oh, Where yeah, yeah, yeah. And people houses. living on the doorways and everyone an alcoholic and all this kind of stuff. And I asked my dad, you know, what is this? I didn't understand. I'd never seen this before. And he said, these are people who are busy killing themselves the long way. Um, but that's what alcohol does. Cocaine does the same thing. All drugs of abuse thwart our basic instincts for survival. The, the way they do that has to do with how much, how potent they are and how prevalent and how easily, how, what, what, how, what the easy access is, how little friction there is to finding the stuff. And I think that that is absolutely what fentanyl and meth have done um, uh, uh, across this country. It's so, particularly in certain areas, you can find it so, so easily. It's always in your face. What this means is that the longer we leave people on the street, the more likely is they're going to die. The reason for, th for that is because of the nature of fentanyl. Fentanyl will kill you. But the, the reason also is that meth will drive you to psychosis and schizophrenia and in such profound ways that you are unable to kind of function or, or make a, a, a coherent, rational 
decision of, of, of any kind. And meanwhile, the drugs are simply just taking over your, 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 your ability to, um, uh, to, to preserve that yourself insect for self, self preser preservation. And so all of this is the new nature. Yeah, again, right. As I said, that it seems very clear to me that rock bottom now is death and there is no readiness for treatment to be found when you are in a, an encampment or a group somewhere where everybody's got dope and it's never, you never are, f are far away. It's always in your, your face. The other thing is that um, two other points to this, I think are extraordinarily important to make. One is that the longer you are on the street, the more, the less chance you have of really finding any kind of readiness or, or, you know, finding that rock bottom without dying. And that's because the street is just one big trauma factory, beatings, rapes, pimping, uh, accidents, falls. It's uh, that doesn't even count the times daily that you're taking your life in your hands by using drugs in these, in these areas. It's a, it's a trauma factory. You need to get people off a place where they cannot leave the other the the other there there are many parts of there are some parts i would say of harm reduction i think are very very important one is the the use of naloxone narcan which is an antidote to overdose opioid overdose very very important to use essential tool needs to be as common as fire extinguishers in restaurants and what have gas stations etc cetera, etc cetera, all that kind of stuff but there is that does not mean that there is no risk from using repeated um for allowing people to repeatedly overdose and revive them they are alive for the moment, and it's, that last phrase is the key one there. For the moment, they're, they're alive, but repeated overdose, and this is what fentanyl has been creating all across this country in historic, unprecedented ways. You have never seen people with so many overdoses to their name now, 20, 30, 40 overdoses to their name. Repeated overdose will create its own inability for you to get off the street because there is a brain impairment. Every time you overdose, you are getting uh, uh, oxygen. Your brain is being deprived of oxygen. That is the nature of an opioid overdose. Your brain is being told not to breathe. And you get this, this, this brain impairment that happens gradually, and it happens particularly when you overdose, and then you are not, your brain is not allowed the chance to heal for several weeks. It's not the NFL where they take you off the field for whatever, three weeks or whatever. You go right back into it and people overdose the next day or that afternoon or two days later. And it is, that is a damaging, damaging thing. And it damages the, the hippocampus, which governs memory. It damages the prefrontal cortex, which governs consequences and decision-making and all that. And so you get a number of things happening that really motivate away from you finding and voluntarily leaving the street, which is why I think given that this is now the time of fentanyl and meth, we need to use law enforcement. Law enforcement is a profound uh, and, and beneficial tool. People say, oh, well, the law enforcement didn't work. It was the drug war and all that. And there's a lot of truth to that. But the, tr the, the real problem with law enforcement and the drug war was not, the real problem with the drug war was not that we use law enforcement. It's that we only use law enforcement. Again, you cannot deal with something like the brain, brain chemistry mm. and the reward pathways with using one tool. That's what we tried with the opioid epidemic. And look at the consequences. Yeah, we're going to deal with pain. We're going to cure all American pain. Pain emanates from the central nervous system in our brain. And we're, how we're going to cure that? How we gonna, what's the magic bullet there? 
narcotic painkillers for everybody. And we're still dealing with the consequences of that. When you deal with something with one, like, as complica complex as that, with one tool, you will always run in uh, to trouble. It's very complicated stuff. It's very individualized as, 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 as well. But so the idea that we can kind of not use this um, remarkable power to get people off the street, away from the dope, is really, I think, very um, misguided. At the same time, though, I think what's fascinating, what's very exhilarating, which is very exciting to watch, is how people are in, in various parts of the countries, although not in the West Coast, I noticed, rethinking jail. Jail has become this amazing, fertile area for innovation, particularly with the idea that, that you can now create rehab clinics within a jail. And that that jail then has a crucial characteristic that makes it fundamentally important to use when the things are, when, when it's fentanyl and meth on the streets and the quantities we've seen. And that is that you get arrested, yes, arrest, and then you cannot leave when the dope demands, insists that you do so. But you're not going to a jail then where you just sit around, fester, vegetate, you know, compare old crime stories. You are going to a place where uh, a pod we can, after you've detoxed, you see the truth of what, of what your life's become, you can volunteer and opt into a, a recovery pod. And then these recovery pods in these jails, people, there's long waiting lists now because people understand that this is a life-saving thing, that actually arrest is a blessed, compassionate event. And I've just talked, this was the case before, I must say, before these experiments in jail were going on. People would tell me, I've interviewed too many people now, who told me the best day of my life was when I got arrested because I'd be dead. Otherwise, save my life. However, when you compare that, or when you pair that, rather, with a, a, a places like I wrote about in the book, and the, the least of us, Kenton County in, in Kentucky, where you have, you know, you, you, have, you, you, you wake up every morning, you make your bed, then you're in classes, you're in GDD classes, you've got medical assistant treatment, you get um, social workers signing up for healthcare. So when you get out, all of a sudden, jail becomes a place where you're preoccupied with what happens when the guy gets out. We've never seen jail care at all about what happened when people left. But this isn't. This is being. Uh, this is, you know, being sparked. I think because, particularly in areas that have the longest experience with the opioid epidemic, they are seeing what works and what doesn't work. And actually, law enforcement is an enormously powerful force. In California, Prop 47, you know, made the mistake of saying all, all felon drug felonies need to be, or drug felonies need to be misdemeanors of various kinds. And to me, that made no sense because it's, it's penalizing the one person that needs to help the, the most. That, that, that addict needs to get off the street, needs, needs to be pushed there needs to be a carrot and a stick. And so far, we've, and I certainly, I think in California, even though I'm living in Nashville, I'm really Californian all my life, and we'll be moving back there in, in, in a year or two. Um, you know, it's, it's, we, we got rid of the carrot. I mean, sorry, we got rid of the stick, pardon me. And it's just like mm -hmm. consequence free stuff. And that helps nobody, and except for the drug trafficker who understands that I can sell these guys all forever. And, 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 uh, 
until, of course, they die. Because, you know, the one truth, the one truth of the epidemic in the United States is that there is no such thing as a long-term street user. Does, do not exist. And, and they all die. Heroin, you could last 30, 40 years. Not so much. Two years. Maybe three. All right. So imagine the mayor of San Francisco calls you up and says, <laughs> I hear you're an expert. Yeah. Expert's a term I try not to use. Okay, fine. Use. Let me, let me, I'm a reporter. I've done a lot of reporting of on those. Seriously. Okay. Mayor, mayor of San Francisco calls you and says, what should we do differently? Yeah. We may, wave a magic wand. We have a serious issue. We have two people dying a day, maybe more. We're not sure if the numbers are even correct. Right. We have 20, supposedly 20,000 intravenous, although it's unclear if they're really intravenous these days because most people are smoking, but we have tens of thousands of people in San Francisco coming to San Francisco to buy drugs, use drugs. We have people who even have city housing but are still using tents on the street to do drugs during the day. Yeah. What should we do? Well, I mean, I think you have to start by by changing the image of San Francisco as a place where it's everybody can just come and do dope all day long and there's not a problem with it. Um, I don't believe, I believe now tents that began as a very, uh, comp with a very compassionate impulse have now become vectors of kind of the worst uh, public health problems, the worst uh, exploitative problems. Pimping is big time thing in tents. Um, and, and the ones that I've, in the areas that I've reported on, certainly in LA it is, I know. Um, I'm sorry, just to clarify, what do you mean by that? People are... People are being exploited constantly. Pimp, they're pimped out. There's, uh, you know, there's, uh, um, to me, to me, pimps, I'm sorry, to me, tents are just vectors of the worst. Uh, horrible public health issues, you know, mm -hmm. feces and, and all kinds of, of filth. Um, and then, um, and, and then, yeah, uh, giving rise to the worst criminal elements taking advantage of the most vulnerable people. All of that is, is where the tents have become, have grown in, what tents have grown into uh, on, on, on the street. And I, I think they started maybe with the right impulse and, and very quickly became a, a classic idea. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, so um, I, I, I certainly, I have not been to San Francisco much. I certainly have seen LA up close and personal, and I would say that that's absolutely the case. And I don't think the cities are all that that different, but I would say that you need to begin to charge fentanyl as if it's similar to firing a gun into a crowd. I'm not sure how anyone makes the argument that that is not what fentanyl is. It's absolutely a danger, and it's a very, very much, very clear that you very will will likely kill somebody as the would do if you just fired a gun into a crowd so you know assault attempted murder something like that and you need to set that up and you need to make sure that people understand that i would say that you also need to understand that the longer people do dope the more nowadays the more chance they're going to have to die and that is a reality that wasn't the case 10 years ago 
really, mm -hmm. uh, really wasn't. You could exist. You could live not well, but you could live. And I don't think that's true anymore. I just think that the evidence is too clear all across the country, you know, just remarkable numbers of people dying. And, and I think that that is, you know, that's one of the effects of, of fentanyl on the street and consequence free, uh, world. So my feeling very much is that, that, um, fentanyl changes everything and, and it, it requires people on the right to change their, their minds. Um, certainly people in, in, uh, across the country, jailers and sheriffs are not really, some of them are very un, uneasy about treating jail as a place of drug addiction recovery. And I think they need to visit some of these jails that are actually doing this and they'll see how, how, how remarkable it can be, how they can actually have a jail without dope in it. That's an amazing idea. I've never seen a jail without dope in it, except for these pods where, where there's drug addiction recovery going on and, uh, and uh, everyone's bought in kind of, you know, there's, you get booted if you created problems, you know, and, 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 and so, you know, on the left, I mean, you know, I, I, I too fervently wish we had never made marijuana illegal back in the early part of the last century and so on. I, believe me, I don't, I'm not sure, I'm not bought into this idea, but but I, but I, but I think that now that we have the problems that we have, we need to understand how, with realism and without dogma, with not without leaving aside the inquisitorial um, impulse that seems so prevalent among people, harm reductionists on the left, wanting to find evil and demons and everybody who who would who would suggest something different from what they have proposed. I, I just think that they need to understand how fentanyl and methamphetamine change everything, everything, and yeah. um, and and how they all work together to create and or um, uh, uh, let me put it a different way. I think they need to understand how fentanyl and meth create homelessness and then keep people homeless too. It's a very, very important thing. Once there's so much of this stuff out there that people will be delivered to the street by sometimes by these by these drugs. But even people who who became homeless by a million different ways, and there are so many ways, and people people got homeless, aging out of foster care, domestic violence, leaving prison without any family support, et cetera. So you can go on and on and on. But whatever the reason, once they're on the street. These drugs are so prevalent. They make using them kind of part of the, of the world that you're in. They make sometimes like methamphetamine will keep you up, keep you warm. It's part of staying alive. It's, it'll keep you separated from the grim reality that you face. All of this keeps you homeless. Right. You know? And so we need to understand that that's the case. Allowing uh, people to go into uh, permanent supportive housing and use drugs and then have their dope dealers move in with them as I'm not sure about San Francisco it definitely happened in, in, in Los Angeles. I mean, to me, this is, this is crazy. It means that the people who are truly interested in finding um, uh, recovery 
are surrounded by the worst elements and it's very difficult to, to break away from. Just talk to a few of those folks and you'll see. Yeah, there's a couple different policy um, proposals on happening in San Francisco right now. One, um, there's a set of people who are very pro-safe injection sites. So Mayor Breed has been pretty vocal about this. Uh, State Senator Scott Weiner, they are, when they talk about the overdose crisis, the main thing that they are promoting is safe injection sites. This has been yeah. a big, and then you have a, we have a supervisor, Matt Dorsey, who is advocating for drug-free zones. Because right now we don't really have any. Um, yeah. If you go into permanent supportive housing here, yes, there will be people on every floor smoking fentanyl and meth. There's no sober-only housing. There's no sober-only yeah. shelters. We don't have an option for people who want to Imagine go to what that because does to it's viewed as discriminatory. Right. It's viewed as discriminatory. The, the focus is on low barrier, and that's viewed as a barrier. And it's... um. And and the way that it's viewed, but the thing that I don't understand here is it's like unclear if we view this as a sickness or a choice. It's a sickness <laughs> when it's like when people are, uh, you know, breaking into cars or stealing from stores, the the response is, oh, well, they're very sick from addiction. They can't help themselves. So we can't penalize them. But then when the argument comes up, well, maybe they should be, cons you know, there should be conservatorship. They should go to a mental institution. Or rehab, people say, no, 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 this is their, it's their choice to right. do drugs. And so I kind of think it comes to a perfect head with the safe injection sites where we're saying, okay, this is someone who's making a choice to do drugs. We got to support them in their choice. But I mean, is it their choice? Like, what do you think of that? What do you think of safe, safe oh, injection I, sites? I feel very strongly that, that maybe the first time you use, it's your choice, but maybe you didn't have that choice. Maybe you're given some cocaine and it was really fentanyl or something like that. But eventually it's very clear to me that it is thwarting all the brain's instincts for self-preservation self and survival. I just think that that could not be more clear. Um, now, I'm not in a position, I don't think we're in a position, I should say, to say no to anything. So safe injection sites, maybe. The problem is, though, as I've seen them kind of quoted in, 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 in New York, is, is how you judge them to be a success. Mm -hmm. It should not be that you judge them to be a success because you have uh, 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 revived a lot of people. That goes without saying. The drug supply is so contaminated with fentanyl right now that you are going to be reviving people every day because it's that deadly. It's that powerful and but the problem is as as our overdose numbers are showing you know you, you those folks if they are not transitioned into some place where they can be away physically separate from this dope they will they will die no matter how many times you've revived them and and so using the number the revival numbers as we saved a life no you, well you did Certainly you did, and it's a good thing. And every revived life is an absolute good. But in the long run, you didn't because that person right. went back to the street and then found himself with some dope and didn't have the wherewithal or, or didn't want to or whatever, make it all the way to your self-safe injection site. And so, therefore, that, that person uh, died. You know, um, I, I was looking at some figures from Maine, and, and, and you know, there's... 10,000 overdoses and 70, 700 and whatever, 16 uh, overdose deaths last year. 
overdose revivals. I'm sorry, I should have said that 10,000, something like 10,000 overdose revivals and something like 716 overdose deaths, right? How many of those deaths have been revived numerous, numerous times? I'm telling you, I, there are people with 20, 30, 40 overdose revivals, um, uh, many from ERs or friends or what have you. Just the fact of overdosing and being revived does not mean that in the long run, you have saved that person's life. That's the naloxone is an absolute good and needs to be everywhere, but it is a band-aid and is a band-aid for a extraordinarily ser serious problem. If you are overdosing, it means you are near death and we need to treat people who overdose as if they are near death because eventually that's what's that's what's going to happen with the drug supply the way it is as as common as this stuff is as potent as deadly and all that kind of stuff jesus it's it's it 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 defies you know people are saying well this is the compassion it's not compassionate to leave people on the street when fentanyl and meth in the quantities and the potency that are out there now are out there now so uh, to me it feels I, i'm interested in seeing how a safe injection site might first of all actually figure out how many people are still alive who have been revived i mean i would say that that's a big big question you know at the end of the year you have a you know list of names take the names and then um how many of them are still are still alive but the main thing those things need to be about is about getting people into treatment. The problem is with fentanyl and meth, with such powerful influence over the, the, the basic instincts for survival. If you offer people someone housing, they opt into it. They can just as easily opt out of it. Um, you know, it's it's so common, but people just. I, I talking with this homeless outreach worker in um, for the VA in LA, and he was telling me, you know. I have been doing this several years and I've got a hundred people into housing. A hundred. I said, that's pretty good. He says, you know how many stayed? Two. Two. They all run back to the street. They all run back to the dope. They all run back to the tent encampment where they know everybody and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you know how many of them people are in that situation? Well, oh my God, you need to provide people the blessed respite from the dope that they cannot find on the street. That seems to me is compassion Sam I completely agree with you on especially on evaluating the um I completely agree with you that the revival numbers are not the stat we need to look at. We need to look at the stat of what happens to that person after they leave the safe injection site and is their chance of death higher or lower after they, they visit. Um, which I'm is sure, I, I, the thing I is, know. it's very difficult. People don't want to do that, I think, because, well, people will come in if they have to leave their name, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And I'm like, right. well, you know, you got to do something. You got to, you, you simply cannot just stand there and say, yeah, you know, it's a better idea for you to be out stealing bicycles 
um, being pimped out in their tent, prey to these spectacularly damaging drugs, um, and and be then uh, addressed as with with policies or ideas that were devised before these drugs came and changed every single thing there was to change. Mm -hmm. We've been talking for a long time and covered a lot of material, and I want to be thoughtful to the listeners who this is going to be a lot, I think, for to take in. Sure. Sam, this has just been such a wonderful, I don't know if the word's wonderful. What do I want to say to close this? I think, but you know, I think, I think um, what you say that this is not compassion, that is a powerful statement. And I agree. I think our current approach, I mean, I see what's going on right outside my home. It does, it looks um, like a horror story. So yeah. it's one of the reasons I'm digging into it and trying to figure out what's going on and come up with new ideas because I don't believe that the current approach is working whatsoever unless if the goal is to have more people die. Sam, is there anything else you'd like to speak about before we wrap? Is there any last thing? No, it's that been nice talking cover? with you. I appreciate the I appreciate the questions. These are major issues that Americans have to deal with. And I do believe one final thing I will say that that Things have changed so much that it is not a time for people to hold on to ideas on the right or the left when it's clear that so much has changed and so much isn't working very well. It seems to me that it's time for a lot of things to be rethought. Yeah. And, um, and, in Los Angeles, I can say that I have seen uh, a complete unwillingness to talk about stuff like this. On the contrary, uh, just kind of childish name calling of of you know people who propose, "Hey, maybe this doesn't work. Maybe we should try this." Oh no, you're decriminal. You're criminalizing homelessness. This kind of thing. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Uh, to me, I, I you're seeing people die constantly constantly it's like a massive die-off because of because of, of of fentanyl and the longer you're on the street the more chance you have of dying and so it seems to me we need to be wide open to a lot of stuff yeah yeah okay well i'm going to edit this a little bit <laughs> um I'm yeah all, sure all, feel free i'm gonna Go I'm going to take some notes. I will put, link them into the um, show notes. And I yeah. think I, I just deeply, I, what I love about the way you look at these issues is totally devoid of politics. Um, you've really gone. One other deep thing. In, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, people have asked me if I'm liberal or conservative, Democrat oh, yeah. or Republican. Mm -hmm. And. I'm glad that they have to ask because I don't want to be part of this entrenched, nasty political polarization that is all over the, the country. I want my reporting to inform me. And that's what I've tried to do. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're done? 
<laughs> yeah. Okay, Michelle, what part of town do you live in, by the way? Just what, where, where, what are you seeing? Where are you seeing this, by the way? Well, I go all around San Francisco. Right. Okay. I walk and drive everywhere. Okay. And ride my bike. Oh, okay, good. But I live it. I live. I'm gonna. I'm gonna press stop. Um, 